Our discussion today goes back to the basics of counterpoint and the choreography of sound. We'll have an interview with composer Andrew Maxfield, and our composer profile is on Tomas Luis de Victoria. This is Early Music Monday. As you'll hear in the interview later, I ask Andrew a leading question, and it, it's kind of dumb, but uh, about how counterpoint is related to composition and music in general. And he says how it's the same as choreography to dance. It is the building blocks of what dance is. And he says that phrase, the choreography of sound. And that really hit me that that's what composition is. And if composition is the choreography of sound, then counterpoint are the basic moves that when put together make up the choreography. Counterpoint makes up everything. I remember being in composition lessons at BYU-Idaho and Dr. Christian Asplund from BYU down in Provo, Utah came up and gave us some private lessons because uh, our 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 professor invited him up to, you know, have him give us a new perspective and things and give us kind of some feedback on if you were going to, you know, audition for master's programs, what are some things that you look for, et cetera, et cetera. And so I showed him a piece of mine and I, I had been in lessons one semester. I had participated in the student composer society for like four years but it was all self-taught, and this was my first semester in lessons. So in my lesson with him, I took a piece that I had written before I had started composition lessons and just asked him to give me some feedback and work through it with me. I don't really remember very many specifics, and he didn't say very many specific things because he was really good at letting what I've realized later as I got to my master's at BYU and took you know, composition classes from him. Something he's really good at is understanding and letting students write in the language, the musical language, and with the musical choreography that they want, but making sure that the fundamentals of that particular language and using counterpoint to build the language upon is there. So that's the only thing I remember, though, from that lesson with Dr. Asplin is he said, more counterpoint. That's literally all he said. And then he said it three times. It just needs more counterpoint. And I was like, okay. And in my undergrad brain, I was like, uh, what is that? I thought that just meant parts not moving at the same time. But it's not really. You can have polyphonic music not be very contrapuntally sound, and you can have homophonic music that's really contrapuntal. Because the idea of counterpoint is that the music is conceived in two dimensions, on two axes. The horizontal melodic line and the vertical harmonic line. And each of those things interplays with other parts at different times while also continuing to have some sense of 
uh, horizontal or melodic independence. So counterpoint being that, you know, the lines are independent, but working together as a team. Now, I don't want to get into too many specifics and get all technical about counterpoint at this point, because Andrew and I get into it a little bit, but mostly because of a big announcement that I've been sitting on that I cannot wait to share with everyone that I'll be announcing after the interview. So, surprise, surprises. We'll turn now to our interview with Andrew Maxfield. Okay, well, thank you for getting up so early. I appreciate it. It's, you know. <laughs> it's, it's my fault that we had to do it this early. This makes it really, really early, early music or something like that. Exactly, like early squared, which is double. <laughs> <me>, so. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. So, Andrew, I would love to hear kind of your story of how you got into composing. Well, you know, I actually, I take solace in stories like uh, Paul Cezanne, the painter who uh, really didn't, bloom until way later in life and was always kind of stumbling his way forward in a cloud of self-doubt and this kind of stuff because I can relate so much more to that than uh, to a Mozart or something like that. that I think most people can. That's why, yeah. like me too, like, I don't know, I failed voice lessons. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, you know, Pavarotti over here, like, you know, like, right, right, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, so my experience was that um, I grew up in a kind of a creative household. My mom's a flute teacher and a real passionate um, appreciator of music generally, but especially art music. Sure. Uh, when we were in our record cabinet at home, there was classical music from my mom. Mm-hmm. And then there was the middle section of Joni Mitchell that my parents both liked. And then my dad's section was Kansas and Earth, Wind and Fire. That's and, uh, amazing. And, but my dad's creative too. He's a, a, a very inventive person um, who has used that creativity in entrepreneurship and these things. And he's also a really gifted amateur singer. So I grew up in this environment where we were encouraged to be creative and we're listening to different things all the time and at some level I just didn't know any better and I would I remember lying on my stomach in the living room uh, with blank uh, staff paper and uh, I would just sit there and draw circles on it and then I would hand it to my mom and ask her to play the things that I had written (laughs) and uh, she was pretty good natured she would humor me and I have no idea what I actually created and she probably had no idea too, but there was this sort of like, childlike creative spark where I didn't know enough to not compose. I just thought, well, I wanna make circles on paper. So that's what you do. Yeah. And uh, I remember, it says the internet is unstable. Is that cutting in and out audio wise? It did for just a second, but I got it like caught up. Okay. So yeah, you're good. Okay. Tell me if it glitches or something. So you, cause I don't, I don't want it to. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like... I mean, you're, that's going to be a problem in post, but anyway. <laughs> um, 
That's okay. You can fix that. Yeah. So I, as a little kid, I just composed because I didn't know any better. And then uh, I remember going to a young audiences concert by an orchestra, which uh, after which I told my mom, I want to be the, I want to be the guy with the stick, the yeah. conductor. Right? right. And um, so I settled for piano lessons like most kids do. And then, uh, you know, followed the, the piano course for, for years until I was in my late teens. And all along the way, I was, I was composing just because I didn't know any better. I was sort of a, a self-declared composer with a lowercase c. Yeah. And I just did it because I loved it. And it was interesting to me. And I was composing for my high school choir. And I was also uh, writing songs for my rock band that will never, ever, ever be heard by anybody. And, uh, and then in college, I was faced with this uh, disturbing fact that there were composers with a capital C. There were like the mm -hmm. official, the academic composers. And they were writing music that didn't make sense to my ears all of the time. But I, I suddenly felt like, oh, I'm not one of, I don't have a capital C, I'm a lowercase c. Right. Composer. And, uh, but nevertheless, I, I took all the kind of serious composerly classes I could yeah. Uh, counterpoint orchestration, these kinds of things, just chasing my own creative fascinations. But um, it wasn't until I wrote a whole collection of choral pieces on texts by Wendell Berry, an American poet from Kentucky, um, that I sort of struck on um, music that made other people think I was a composer. And it was once I had choral directors asking me for sheet music that I thought, oh, wait, I think these people think that I'm a composer with a capital C. What <laughs> if I took myself, what if I thought of myself that way? And that was a big turning point, but it took forever. Right. And I think that that, again, I, I, I jest a little when I say <laughs> you don't have this Mozart, Mozartian story, but you really do. The fact that, and, and, and your mom, I think was probably one of the biggest uh, kind of facilitators of that because if she would have said oh like that doesn't work like instantly you would have faced that little c versus big c without realizing that you were at the at a young age and it would have probably stifled you so I think that that yeah. that those skills really do did manifest themselves and and grew like as you grew and so I I think that so many people can relate to just like I have these creative urges, but oh no, like I can't, I'm not capital C. Yeah, who, who, am, I, who am I to do, it, to do anything with that? With I their respective fields, right. Yeah, and I see it with my kids now who are six and eight. And I realize like there's so many opportunities to totally squash the innate creativity in kids. And I just feel grateful that for whatever reason, my parents did exactly the opposite. They just sort of kept dumping a little bit of fuel on whatever creative yeah. fire I had at the moment and the same for my siblings. And, uh, and as a result, it didn't get squashed and maybe it took a, it took a while to sort of finally, you know, bloom or whatever, but Hey, it, it, you know, it, yeah, but it totally yeah. happened. And yeah, I think that's amazing. I think that's incredible. And I get, like I said, super relatable to so many people, even, even conductors that I'm just, I'm just a high school conductor or I'm just a junior high conductor. Or I just conducted. No, like it doesn't matter. Like 
you have this sphere of influence and you can expand it continually, you know? I think the tricky thing is with creativity is that um, there's this, you can't, it's very difficult to escape this kind of two-sided thing where on the one side you have this um, creative instinct, but on the other side kind of when something is you have this, um, tendency towards creative self-sabotage where it's like, Oh, you know, not me. Right. Uh, it must be for somebody more talented than I am or somebody who has something to say, cause I don't have something to say. Right. And so the, 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 you know, any form of creative expression requires this kind of like constant nurturing of the, protecting the the creativity creativity itself from that like weird saboteur yeah oh that's fascinating yeah so to shift gears then with that sort of creativity how do you compose with rules <laughs> you know there, there's there's rules and conductors won't pick up your piece if it's not quote unquote good <laughs> but like so how do you do that how do you how do you work in that creativity inside the framework of what's acceptable or whatever um well i think that um oh let me see if i can remember the quote i can get there i can get there okay so i'm roughly translating a quote from nadia boulanger uh, the pedagogue. And she said effectively that skill without genius, genius meaning this kind of like innate or this kind of creative, the indescribable creative spark. She said, skill without genius is very little, yeah. but genius without skill is nothing at all. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with rules? Well, I think that an innate spark uh, that sort of creative urge is maybe a little bit hard to put your finger on. Yeah. but the rules aren't so hard to put your finger on. That's, um, that's the basis of craft. And um, these days, I think broadly, there's a conversation about creativity that goes something like, oh, gee whiz, you're so creative. It's like you got struck by lightning and wow, magic happens. Or like, mm -hmm. whoa, this guy has such a strong sense of style and an original voice, something that's never been heard before, this kind of stuff. And I, I think it really misses the mark because it, it dwells sort of at the surface of the issue. The, and underneath the surface is craft. Right. And for centuries, it has not been a mystery where craft comes from. Right. And you can find that in any creative discipline, but in music, um, you're dealing with sound and sound has yeah. uh, different kinds of properties. It has some properties that are literally physical, like acoustic properties. Yeah. And then it has aesthetic properties that you inherit depending on where you sort of trace your lineage and what, um, what type of music it is that you, that you connect to. But the way that I deal with the question of rules is I totally embrace the rules as I inherit them through craft. And then after you internalize them and embrace them, you can decide 
what to do with them, when to quote unquote break them. But you, it's like a carpenter filling a toolbox full of tools. Yeah. Every tool is useful for something and every rule is useful for something because it teaches you about the possibility of sound. Yeah. thing with sound. Yeah, here, say that other part just again. It teaches you the possibilities of sound and then you kind of cut out. Okay, sorry. Um, yeah, so every, every rule is like a tool in a carpenter's toolbox. It's useful for something and it teaches you something about the possibility and properties of sound. And then you use your own voice to say something with yeah. the tools you've collected. Yeah, and I think, oh man, that's so good for some of these like music theory students uh, because they're always like, well, why are there so many rules? You know, every th said every th theory student ever. And it's like, okay, well, we can break this down because this gives you the framework. And you said it in a way I've never been able to say it of this is actually tools you're being given so you can work within a framework of what's gonna, what the sound's gonna be like. So then you can know what to do with it later. And you do that also with the voice and you can even do that with within the performance realm, not even just the, you know, the, the creative part of it where you're creating the music, but the recreation of it in a performance setting. Like, well, okay, our vowels have to line up. Well, why do they? Because there's properties of sound and like all of those different concepts. Well, I think that music theory, maybe theory broadly suffers um, from some basic problems. One is that people who try to teach it oftentimes are selling solutions before the learner mm -hmm. understands what the problem is. And it's obsessed with nomenclature. It's the, it, you know, it's a gigantic class about the naming of things. <laughs> And the naming of things is way less interesting than the thing itself. Yeah. I might, you know, it, it, I think that trying to explain what a Neapolitan six chord is. Right. Is so useless until you have this like urgent urgency in your ears to understand what it does or how do you get through a subdominant function into a dominant in a new cool way right the four chord right it, it's it, it the the naming of things is uh, people get so obsessed about what you call stuff but really what we're talking about is what does it sound like yeah. what, what the what are the property of sound what are the aesthetic principles and how do you use them yeah. Oh, I think that's really profound. Because again, you, you introduce a piece of music, you'd be like, whoa, where did that sound come from? Well, let's let's try to define it. Let's try to put our finger on what it is and how it functions. Okay, well, this is what it's called. But this, again, is what it is and why it is and how it is. And to me, yeah, I can't think of a single theory experience I've had where it's been the way you're talking about it's always been well let, this is the name of it now let's talk about it and yeah. let's get our nomenclature right so yeah wow I haven't even thought about that now my brain's exploded and I have to like 
wrestle with that for a couple of days because well, it's, it's, it's super funny because if you want something to be totally forgettable and absolutely useless, stress out about what you call it, but don't spend too much time on what it does to the architecture of the sonic experience. Yeah. If yeah. you want the exact reverse to be true, like have a mind altering experience with a new sound and say, oh my gosh, what is that? Yeah. And then after that has like implanted hooks in your brain, you say, oh, well, let's call it this. Yeah. You'll never forget it. Yeah, exactly. Oh man. Okay. Seriously, like today in my theory class, that's what I will be talking about. We will, I will talk about something new and instead of doing it the old way, I want to do that. That's really cool. So kind of to shift gears a little bit, but to keep kind of in this theory vein, what in connecting it to, you know, early music or just really historical music more broadly, the role of counterpoint, it's just a a beast and 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 a mountain to probably discuss, but what do you think are some key roles that counterpoint plays in historical music and then in contemporary music? I think that's a little bit like asking what role does choreography play in dance? Right, right. And there, well, kind of a leading question, I guess, but that was really the answer I was hoping to eventually get to. <laughs> so, well, like why so, I guess, is what. Yeah. Is kind of uh, and I'm, and I'm question. It, maybe that's facetious, but I think it real. It's uh, that's a true way to look at it. And if you go back in time, let's take ourselves back to the Renaissance or even pre-Renaissance. Back before there were music theory textbooks with um, defined systems, we had these treatises where people were sort of trying to explain to themselves what on earth music is and what it's for and how it works. Yeah. But it was... Uh, these were open questions. Right. And I have to think that they, they were dealing with really fundamental observations. Yeah. For example, if I make a certain pitch with my voice, oh, and you do the same one, it sounds like we're doing something that's the same. Right. You know what I mean? Or if you did it an octave higher, it would be the same, but different. Right. Or if you did it a fifth higher, it would be different, but not bad different. Yeah. Right. And, and people were rallying all sorts of arguments to explain these phenomena to themselves. Uh, okay. Well, at a mathematical ratio level, uh, you know, let's get all get back to Pythagoras here. Uh, different but good different must mean that it has a simple mathematical ratio and simple is good. So good is good. Therefore, it's good. Right. And right. right. Or a third. Well, it's almost simple and almost simple is pretty close to simple and simple is good. So good is good. But but they were making these like fundamental uh, like genetic level observations about sound. Yeah. And one of those most 
freeing observations was that, you know, if I were to sing a series of pitches, uh, I mean, they were, they, were, they were still wrestling with the idea that up meant higher in pitch and down meant lower in pitch. They, they, right. they take so much of this for granted. Yeah, so um, primitive. And... But if you and I were jamming, right? Yeah. I sang one thing and you sang something else that wasn't the same. Yeah. Sometimes that was really cool and sometimes it was terrible. <laughs> and maybe we should figure out what really cool is. Yeah. Right. And thus was born the discipline of counterpoint, which yeah. is really how do you choreograph sound? Yeah. If you're just doing a line, if you're just creating a single line, the rules of counterpoint maybe teach you about what is an expressive line, what makes a make what makes a line sound like a coherent line. Right. That's what's important. But as soon as you start putting voices against each other, then you have this very new exciting kind of question, which is how do you choreograph sound? Yeah. Um, and so, but back, you know, back in our um, historical imagination here, uh, there weren't classes for composers and classes for performers. Right. Just kind of music and music right. meant understanding how this choreography worked and the stuff that sounded good, the stuff that sounded bad, and how you do relatively more of the good. And when you do some bad stuff, you do it on the way to good stuff so that it sounds purposeful. Um, right, we're prepared and, you know, for it, whatever that means. <laughs> right, and so, and, you know, like, and, and in sort of crass terms, I've just summarized the content of, of most of the medieval treatises right. on music. Right. You wanna talk Zarlino, you wanna talk, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, even we just even going forward to to Johann Fuchs and uh, um, the the one I the one that Alfred Mann translated why can't it Jepson oh Jepson. Jepson yeah 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 um, like even those things it's the same concept they just had more of a system in place than was you know kind of the generation before the composers they were talking about but it's the same concept like. Jepson says right. every, every other sentence. Well, this is not so good, and well, yeah, you know, well, why it's not so good? Yeah, Well, and that's the thing, though, is that over time, um, and you and you see the way that the the treatises referred to each other over time. Right. All of these people who are formulating their ideas about what music is what sounds good, what sounds bad, how do you do more of what's good, less of what's bad, or control the bad, right? I'm being sort of like crass about it, but they were all accumulating their observations and formulating these sort of higher order explanations and sets of principles. And um, it took a long time to make sense of the acoustic phenomenon of sound, but the, those accumulations became really what we understand as counterpoint. Right. And so what, did, what does counterpoint have to do with historical music, early music and contemporary music? Well, it's always the same. Counterpoint is the choreography of sound. It's how do you relate one sound to another sound, either in succession or in simultaneous um, hearing. And the thing that has changed though is the the language sure. 
and those the sort of current working definitions of what's good and what's bad. And I think here is where counterpoint has suffered um, because of its own terminology. Mm-hmm. Because even even to cool young music majors right now, right, the word counterpoint sounds awfully stuffy. Right, right. And we do it a terrible disservice by offering classes called 16th century counterpoint yeah. or 18th century <laughs> counterpoint. And at least one student is sitting in the class thinking, you dudes know that it's the 21st century right now, right? right. Has anybody picked up on this? <laughs> right. Am I the only one? And even further, I mean, even beside that sort of dis- that basic disadvantage um, and the fact that you're taught harmony yeah. before you're taught counterpoint, which is a complete reverse order of operations, it also suffers because the terminology is a little bit stiff and off-putting. We talk about first species counterpoint, right. second species counterpoint. Now, if you, if you flip that on its head and said, all right, guys, Pay attention, because today we're going to talk about consonants. You don't understand how profound consonants is until you pay attention to this. I mean, we're talking first species counterpoint is just consonants. It's this pure abstract appreciation of simple consonants. Yeah. And once you like, once you get that in your ears and you hear it and you think, oh yeah wait a minute, there's a difference between consonants and dissonance. Right. That is like a physics acoustics difference. Right. That's interesting. Part of it is kind of an aesthetic difference that has to do with assumptions that we make about the development of scales and all these kinds of things. Oh, that's interesting. But you have to just like live with consonants for a while. Right. And then after you've totally geeked out about consonants, guys, we're going to introduce the first dissonance. You don't get how cool this is. This is a passing tone. And not only is introducing the first dissonance an exciting thing because we're, at, we're adding this non-consonant right. event, we're also introducing a weak beat. Right. Because the choreography of sound has as much to do with met- metrics, right? Pulse, which is like a heartbeat, right. as it does with pitch, and so in that way, I feel like you—it's possible to reverse the curse and uh, talk about counterpoint, counterpoint in ways that are inherently interesting and that and that highlight the the sort of evergreen. Uh, yeah always relevant aspects that connect early. You get in modern music that is like not so-called tonal uh, right. or spectral, whatever. It's still contrapuntal. There's still contrapuntal activity. Yeah. They just maybe have changed. Like you said, you've changed the, 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 the language a little bit. You've changed some of the quote unquote rules. You've established new patterns and, but it's the same idea of, I really like that definition of the choreography of sound because even in, so I took the stodgy 16th century counterpoint class at at BYU with Dr. Asplund and he's a genius. 
Yeah. And it was, we were like on it. If you, every node had to be in the Palestrina system. But then at the end of the year, end of the semester, the project, the final project was write a piece in the language of one of the following composers. And he had just like this long list. And I was like, wait, half of those people aren't even 16th century composers. And, he, and, and then what he said, I'll never forget. It was like, the point of this class was to teach you how to analyze composers' systems and a specific composer's language. Now you can take those skills and analyze any of these other composers and their language and try to imitate it. What are they doing with the voices? How did they, and so I would add to this, how did they choreograph the sound? And, and then, and then you know, so I picked Stalink because it was Renaissance still, but there was, you know, one kid chose to do Sacred Heart stuff. It was like, awesome, cool. There was a 20th century guy on there, but it, it, it's all about how do we, how are we defining this language of things that people have already figured out how to choreograph? Now let's define it. So if that's the way that these treatises and theory books were written, then why don't we teach it that way instead of teaching it from the theory backwards, just like you said, like. Well, I think there's good explanations for that because once you get to Rameau, um, well, really, so, okay, so let's back up. So the Baroque, Bach, this was a turning point where, where before that era, mm-hmm. there really was, there was not tonal music. There was modal music. There right. was polyphonic music. And you might've had things that sound to our ears like major chords and minor chords and these kinds of things, but they weren't relating to each other in what became common practice, tonal, right harmonic language it was really the 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 coincidence of um four voice counterpoint and particular types of doubling that gave rise to what became Mm. harmony right once you have harmony and you're dealing in the the defined language of tonality yeah then it's really tempting to start basically from that point, from the, you start teaching from those assumptions. Hello, everybody, we have this thing called a one chord. This is a tonic. This is a five chord. And we, we take for granted these, these kinds of things. We talk about these objects as though they are sort of freestanding and have these defined like dance moves and these kinds of things. And that's fine. Kind of, it's fine, but it takes it, it uh, when you talk about voice leading mm. inside of harm inside of the common practice tonal language, you're making you're you're sort of you're 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 including all of these contrapuntal ideas, but without actually giving any attention to counterpoint. I think it would be I think it's possible and wise actually to teach counterpoint first without grounding it in a this is 16th century counterpoint this is 18th century you talk about counterpoint as the choreography of sound then you say here here is how that plays out in what what came to be known as the common practice era yeah and and that's what you know it if i 
remember my single glance at the the kind of new, I think it's only a couple years old, AP curriculum. They do have a section on counterpoint before they get into harmonic analysis. Mm -hmm. and again, it's only, I think it's only two years old. I think it's the second year of like this new AP curriculum and textbook. One of the other teachers at the district has, I just glanced, but but I, I, I did that last year and this year going through some of the Jepson stuff with just two parts, just so they can get a handle on how do you interact more than one thing? Like it just, how do you, how do you get two different voices to interact? Because now we're going to start talking about chords and four parts to interact. And, you know, I think those things are really important. And those are the things that as an amateur composer, quasi hobbyist <laughs> composer myself, those are the things that, are total like ceiling points for me because I learned it, you know, harmonies first. And I was singing Eric Whitaker, which he's an actual great contrapuntist. But when the first thing you think of is these cool shimmery chords and, and okay. moments. So I would just take cool shimmery moments plus all my harmonic analysis. And then why, why do I get stuck after like eight bars? Like, you know, well, those kinds of things. That's interesting because I, I had a, I had <laughs> I thought was a solid undergrad music education and I really don't have complaints about it but right later on like uh 10 years after I graduated I started really serious study of counterpoint um mm -hmm. with uh my mentor Philip Lasser and um it it wasn't until maybe two years into studying it and filling binders with counterpoint exercises that I started kind of unlearning and relearning everything I knew about harmony. Yeah. And feeling like finally I was in the driver's seat. And yeah. I think that's the difference is that when people, when composers talk about, uh, when they evaluate other composers, oftentimes they'll, they'll talk about saying, oh, he or she has terrific contrapuntal control. It's like this sense of, um, being in charge, being really in control of your material. Yeah. I think that's what counterpoint does for you. It teaches you, it helps you internalize a set of aesthetic principles and it helps you internalize um, kind of a skill set for managing multiple simultaneous simultaneities. Yeah. Right. Right. And that then gives you the wherewithal to say, Ooh, I have this idea. I can kind of imagine a narrative arc that goes something like this. You know, there's a beginning, a middle, yeah. and end. And now I've got the toolbox to <laughs> from point A to point B. Yeah. Oh man, that is. And that's what, like, again, I felt. I feel the exact same way that my undergraduate music education was so good, and I, I wouldn't trade it for anything else but it but again there's some things where it's like okay I have to kind of rethink this even even as a conductor right like thinking about the how you approach how do I analyze a score how do I approach this piece of music <clears throat> excuse me that's like contrapuntal basically which a lot of people use interchangeably with polyphonic which is not <laughs> early true right but it, it 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 is all contrapuntal but 
what kind of takes the front seat? Is it the line? Is it the harmony? Is it the texture? Is it the text? Is it what parts do we bring out in, in any given moment? And I think, I actually think an understanding of counterpoint helps me do that a little bit more accurately or gives me another tool to look at it in a different way to say, okay, this is probably what the composer was intending because of all these things. Whereas if I just was thinking of my common practice harmonic analysis, I'm just trying to say, well, all these things are happening. It's probably a this chord. Well, that doesn't really matter that much. Like, what is what are the tenors doing that's related to the sopranos? And that really is what makes artistry come off of the off the stage from a conductor's standpoint. Yeah, I think thinking um, thinking vertically, saying, well, what chord is this? That I mean, that's it's not that that's not useful because sometimes you say, uh, well, you know, if this is a subdominant sonority and it's settling down into a tonic, it's going to have a certain feel to it. It's a very that, that's a that's a move you can make. Yeah, uh, but about tendency of pitch. Um, you know, the fourth of the dominant, uh, of the seventh of the dominant chord resolves down into the third of the tonic chord, these kinds of things. But counterpoint is obsessed with the tendency. What is this line doing? Where is it just aching to go? Yeah. And uh, that, I think that tells you a lot about the forces that drive a piece of music forward and make it feel inevitable. And that's, I, I think that's what makes it exciting. But, but then again, uh, when you're thinking about timbre and texture and shimmer and tuning, all of those are important. Like those are also tools in the toolbox. You need all the tools, the more tools you have, the cooler thing you can make, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And then that back to your, what you said earlier about the rules, kind of thinking of them as tools instead of rules. That's exactly, I think, <clears throat> as a conductor, one of the tools that I gained from my counterpoint class, not just theory, but I think that is a very underused and maybe under obtained <laughs> tool in the conductor's kind of tool belt. And maybe I I'm, I'm, might be speaking for myself in past experience, but but I, I think that that's something that is something we can learn from early, early music. And, and, you know, again, connecting that with contemporary just to simply add tools. Like, well, I think you can absolutely derive that as a conductor. I mean, studying counterpoint teaches you about line. Yeah. And, you know, if, a uh, uh, and, and the reason we do short exercises uh, is to to learn what it looks like to have one complete thought. It's like, how do you make a complete sentence? Yeah. And if a complete thought has a single high point and a single low point, and it's not divided awkwardly into two parts, if it uh, isn't boring because it follows the same contour as whatever is accompanying it, it, it teaches the singer also about what, to do with a line. 
right? right? You, don't, you don't need to write dynamics over everything if you've written a good line. Yeah. Because it's built in. Yeah. You, know, you don't need accents necessarily to do your dirty metrical work for you, your syncopation, if you've written a good line. Right. And uh, the conductor can see that on the page and bring the singers into that story. So that absolutely, that's that's where the rubber of counterpoint meets the road. Yeah. Oh, man. I could go on for a long time, but my brain is like, every time I do these interviews with people, it's like they would say stuff and I am not thinking of like the next question or where the next, I'm just like, huh. How could I do that? <laughs> I've, <laughs> it's like I totally like just mind blown 20 million directions <laughs> off in my own world though. So think about how we think about how we learn music though, too. Right. Uh, like when Stravinsky wanted to learn how to compose, he just went and apprenticed with Rimsky Korsakov for five years. And it wasn't uh it's different than have some piano lessons when you grow up, go to school, take some classes that each begin and end with separate syllabi, syllabi. And hey, listen, maybe you can assemble a bigger picture of what this is all about down the road on your own time. Let's right. get you graduated. Yeah. Um, I, I think that anybody now can still follow the Stravinsky model more or less, which is sure. uh, embrace the craft, obsess about the craft and, and start with counterpoint and let it stitch together all of the other things that you pick up from other sources. Well, and that's, I mean, that's not exactly what you did, but that's similar, right? Cause your, your master's degree was not in composition, correct? It was in. Oh, I do have a master's in composition. Um, but, uh, I, I have two master's degrees. This is what you do. Uh, if you have a wandering path through life, I, I went to, I did arts management, and then later on, I did a master's in composition at Boston. Oh, right. But uh, really, the thing that made more difference than anything else was uh, years of study of counterpoint with a mentor. Right, right. Just apprenticeship. Yeah. Because I knew you had that arts administration one, but I, I didn't know you had, I'd forgotten that you had went back and got a master's in composition. But, but again, it's like that, just what you said, that doesn't, schooling doesn't always necessarily equate to complete mastery. Yeah. I feel like the, 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 the more time you spend on the deep craft is kind of like assembling the architectural superstructure or kind of like the spinal cord or something that then you hook everything else to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So many thoughts, so many great things to think about and to ponder about. Um, that's uh, probably a good amount of time uh, for this interview. I would love to have you on again, though, and we can talk about some specifics, like in in your works and and specific pieces that you have with maybe some specific influences. Sure. Whether they're historical or not doesn't really matter. You can, but kind of talk us through your compositional language. I would love to kind of, you know, talk about those things. Um, that would be great. Dude, anytime.
Okay, now for our big announcement. Drum roll, please. Yes, that is the sound of me drum rolling on my desk. Like Michael Scott. On March 29th will be Early Music Monday's first episode of The Andrew Special. It sounds kind of like a weird sandwich you would find at a hole-in-the-wall sandwich place in New York City. I know a lot about New York City because I've never been there. But the Andrew special is going to be a nuts and bolts, practical, technical episode that we're going to, Andrew Maxfield and I are going to be doing once a month as our early music episode. Counterpoint is usually seen as something that's super boring and stodgy and stiff and snooty and highbrow and, and kind of like academic only. But I think that, well, as Andrew and I got talking about this, we realized that there are so many great discoveries to be made about CounterPoint that are much more applicable and accessible to everyone. To find out more about how music works, we're going to talk about maybe a new approach to thinking about music theory. We'll analyze some specific pieces of music. We'll talk about the technical aspects of early music in general, of different musical time periods. And we'll go into all sorts of different rabbit holes talking about the choreography of sound. So March 29th will be the first episode of the Andrew Special. And again, those episodes will come out once a month. And most likely the last Monday of each month. So be sure to check out... Early Music Monday, the Andrew Special, March 29th. Okay, on now to Victoria. Ah, Victoria. Some of you are probably thinking, well, it's about freaking time. Funny story about Victoria. My wife, bless her heart, is hilarious. And she doesn't come from a musical background. She's a genius businesswoman and is brilliant but uh like academic and classical music is not something she's familiar with at all so when i was introducing her to i introduce her to composers every once in a while and and so and she does really good at remembering but when we first started dating uh, victoria was not one of the names that she remembered and so she was talking to me a couple weeks later after i had introduced her to a couple pieces or something and she was like yeah, I really like Angelina, that one Renaissance composer, Angelina. She's good. <laughs> it's like, nice, so close. She'd kill me if she told me, if I if she knew I told you that story. And I'm trying to get her on as a guest to talk about business and stuff and leadership. So maybe it was a bad idea to share that story. I think it's hilarious and cute. She probably not so much. Victoria is one of my faves. And he's a lot of people's faves. I have some theories as to why that is, and we'll get into it in a little second. In a little second. Whoa. In a little bit. (laughs) So dumb. Okay. One might think of, when we talk about counterpoint, the first person that many people think of is Palestrina, and for good reason. But a student of Palestrina's, and someone who had equally great mastery over 
contrapuntal movement is Victoria. He lived under the radar in his personal life. He really didn't, there's not much written about any scandals or any big major events. He just kind of chilled, laid low, and wrote the best music in Spain. It's kind of like Daniel Day-Lewis at the peak of his career. He didn't really say anything, he didn't really do anything. He was just amazing. So really, you can think of Victoria as a slightly more expressive version of Palestrina. And that's kind of like the Spanish, you know, passionate Spanish influence, I guess, into Roman, Italian, Renaissance, sacred music. But he's even more Palestrina than Palestrina was because Palestrina had to make penitence to the church for his past of writing profane secular music. Victoria never had to do that. He never wrote a single secular piece, and all of it was in Latin for the church. So he is the golden child of Renaissance Catholic music. He lived in Rome for 20 years and then was appointed to be the organist at the Royal Convent of the Barefoot Nuns of St. Clair in Madrid. Cool thing about this convent is that it had the most prestigious musical forces in all of Spain. So he had the best choir, the best musicians, and he wrote the best music. <sighs> Some people just kind of walk in the light, you know. Must be nice. Anyway, and he, again, he wrote a crap ton of music. It was all sacred music. 20 masses, about 140 motets, 18 magnificats, 9 lamentations, 2 passions. And uh, it's pretty amazing. So a quick side note is that there's a document from the time period detailing the use of instruments and instrumental doubling and whether you know you have instruments adding to the texture, embellishing on the vocal line, replacing the vocal line, taking over for it, or, and or like switching between the voices or just merely doubling. Because our aesthetic in the kind of uh, contemporary 21st century, late 20th century, early music revival, so to speak, is that all of these motets and pieces from kind of the high renaissance in Spain and Italy and England were all unaccompanied. But there's a significant amount of evidence that says that all of it would be accompanied by instruments of some kind, especially the organ, even if it was, again, just doubling the voices. <clears throat> so if we wanted to be really stingy about our performance practice, I don't know why I said stingy with a British accent. That's so insulting. I'm very sorry. But if we wanted to be really highbrow and stingy and be perfectly accurate to the time period, every single Renaissance piece that you do most likely would be accompanied by something. So... One of the documents that I'm referring to comes from the cathedral in Seville and leads us to ask, uh, after I read the quote, it kind of it made me think, is this for all service music, just ceremonial motets, just the mass? Was this only in Seville? I don't, we, these questions aren't answered in documentation, and but it's clear that much of 
again, Victoria's music would have been accompanied. So here's the quote. It says, at the salves, the salves, salves, I don't know how you say that, one of the three verses are played, that are played shall be on Sean's, one on cornets, and the other on recorders, because always hearing the same instruments always wearies the listener. That's such a modern way of thinking. I change the texture. How many times have you been playing through a piece and you know each verse has something different? The texture changes. The basses have the melody. It, everything shifts up. All the men stop singing. There's a trumpet that adds, etc., etc. I think that's really cool that they had the same aesthetical idea. If you hear the same thing over and over, it just wearies the listener. So a sham is basically the precursor to the oboe. The cornet is some kind of cross between a flute and a clarinet, but you'd play it by buzzing the lips, kind of like a modern brass instrument. Very peculiar. And recorders are those interesting instruments that they teach children in America in elementary school, and they get really good at blowing into it like a train horn after they've played hot cross buns like 300 times. But in reality, the recorder is very cool. So even though they, they, and they didn't mark it in the score of just like, well, after the second verse, the cornets will take over the tenor line or the clarinet will start, or uh, the clarinet, geez Louise, the sham will start playing or whatever. It, uh, it wasn't always marked, so we don't know exactly how it would be carried out, but that gives us a lot of liberty to try to recreate their aesthetic of it wearies the listener to do the same thing over and over again, especially if it's a long, repetitive, strophic piece. It wearies the, so what are we going to do? We can totally add and even add modern instruments if you can't get a hold of a sham Get some string instruments and have them double it. I think you can do all sorts of things to make it aesthetically the same as the Renaissance in principle, even if not in actual practice. Um, anyway, so there's a cool thing with acapella, and there's nothing wrong with doing an acapella either if you can't find an instrumentalist or whatever. The music is beautiful unaccompanied as well, which is why so many choirs do it acapella, because you really hear those voices interacting with each other. So anyway, a couple pieces. Now, Victoria's output, like I said, was huge, and you can find so many good pieces by him for free on CPDL, IMSLP, anywhere. But here's some pieces that I've had some really great success with. The first one is called Amicus Meus, and it's one of his 27 Tenebrae Responsories. We've talked about Jesualdo wrote 27 Responsories, as I believe did Dilasso. And so, again, these were would be performed thir- holy th- uh, on during Holy Week on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And there's nine on each day. So one of them, Amicus Meus, the brilliant thing about Victoria is... If I were to describe it from the 10,000-foot view, the polyphony is a lot simpler in texture 
especially this piece, there's longer rhythms. There's a good amount of like switching back and forth between like uh, all four parts together and just the upper two parts or the upper three parts or the lower three parts in the rest of the choir. And the phrases are really simple in length. And the rhythms are simple. My uh, ninth graders at Spanish Fork Junior High uh, did this piece in a quartet, one person per part. And they killed it. And it was awesome. And they learned it fairly quickly, too. It was not something that was unbelievably difficult, but you can make it really expressive. And the more advanced singers you have, you can do some cool things with, you know, really powerhouse singing full sound that makes it sound amazing and really powerful. So Sound of Ages has a really good recording of this. This is our most popular video, actually, or maybe our second most, but it's on Facebook and YouTube, Amicus Meus by Victoria. Go check it out. And again, that would be considered something that is more of an easy piece. An intermediate piece, everyone knows the classic Omanium Mysterium. Uh, that one's, I would consider intermediate. It has a cool mensuration change into this kind of triplum feel. Um, there's so many recordings of that piece, and that one's very well done, so I won't take time to talk about it here. The Requiem, his Requiem is similar in how popular it is, but it also has simpler rhythms, and the vocal ranges stay not out of control completely. And there's two actual Requiems that he wrote, one for four voices, one for six voices. So... But they even both, I would put both of them in sort of this intermediate category and very singable, expressive lines. That's the great thing about Victoria is that even more so than Palestrina, because it doesn't have just a single shape of just arch, you know, where the sopranos climb and then they kind of descend by step or they jump up and then descend by step. Victoria's lines have much more character to them, but they're just as singable and simple. And then as an advanced piece, inter yeah, advanced piece, I would say, is Duo Seraphim Clamabant. This piece is for SSAA. You could take any of his mixed pieces and have them be advanced for your group and again as always well not as always but most of the time the more voices you get the harder it is to keep it together but this piece is really cool because i found i can't believe i found a four-part piece that is quintessentially renaissance it's not some arrangement it's not a retranscription it's not a weird transpose thing it's for four female, treble, whatever, voices, S-S-A-A. The score is an F, but you could easily transpose it up, you know, a whole, because it gets it gets down to that, you know, F below middle C. 
so you could transpose it up a whole step or even a minor third, and it doesn't get out of control for the soprano ones. The thing that makes this tricky is there's lots of voice crossing. Because the ranges are small, that it kind of necessitates for voice crossing. But again, that was a Renaissance thing anyway, thinking horizontal versus vertical. But the lines are so beautiful to sing on their own that it, it makes it to where if you can engage each of the singers in each section to think of it that way, they shouldn't have too much of a problem overlapping with each other and crossing. And it would be a cool thing to have them stand mixed. Very expressive polyphonic texture, the moderate tempo, simple rhythms. Again, the polyphony is a little thick and a little bit more palestrinian. Is that a thing? Palestrinian? That's cool. Uh, But if you have an advanced treble ensemble, this piece would be amazing. There's another cool mensuration change into kind of a triplum or compound meter, which adds another great piece of contrast. So there's so much stuff by Victoria. I didn't even scratch the surface on his music and not really his life either, but the the idea of instruments and instrumental doubling and being able to take some to be okay to to try accompanied by something or to you know don't feel like you're boxed into well this is what's on the page this is exactly what happened because they didn't notate a lot of things but his his tenebrae responsories are incredible Tenebrae Choir has an album of them. Stile Antico has a, has a recording of them. The Talis Scholars have a recording of them. These have been recorded a bunch. Uh, the Requiem Talis Scholars have a killer recording of the six-part Requiem. And uh, Duo Seraphim, I haven't found any recordings, so maybe you can be the first. It would be very, very rad. Okay, thanks for tuning in today. Early Music Monday, think about music as the choreography of sound and see how that changes how you listen to music, how you conduct music, how you perform music, how you talk about music. It's very cool. Had a cool discussion with Andrew Maxfield about some of those principles and the big announcement about the Andrew special. We'll have to see what kind of sandwich that would be at a sandwich place. And our composer profile on Tomas Louis de Victoria. Give us a five-star rating and like and subscribe. Write us a review. Those things all help out a lot. And we'll see you next week. And again, March 29th, the Andrew Special. And we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday.